Hi, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to thank you for joining us and welcome you as we study God's Word together. The lesson you're about to hear was preached to the Franklin Church of Christ on July 20th in 2008. It's the first part of an exciting and challenging lesson entitled, 11 Ways to Be an Unremarkably Average Christian. I hope this lesson lifts you up and edifies you. So get out your Bible and open it to Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 29, and let's learn the 11 ways to be an unremarkably average Christian. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 29 says, Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. That's all well and good. But just to be honest with you, I think excellence is a bit overrated. I mean, the fact is, only a minority of people can excel. <laughs> if everyone did it, it wouldn't be excelling anymore, would it? Most folks today never get past average. I mean, that's why we call it average, because that's what most folks are doing. That's what the average Joe is doing. With that in mind, I've completely changed my goals. I've decided to set them solidly on being average, mediocre, unremarkable. And I want to share with you a simple plan that I've developed, 11 ways to be an unremarkably average Christian. Now, I know that since there's 11 of them, it scares you to death. We're not going to go through all of them this morning. We're going to get some of them tonight. So don't get worried when we get close to ending time and we're only at point five. That's about how far we're going to get probably this morning. But I want to share with you 11 ways to be an unremarkably average Christian. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we praise you because you are the excellent God. You've created all things and you've, woke, you've awakened us this morning given us life and breath and food, and we're amazed at your grace for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to be the kind of servants that you want us to be. Be with us this morning as we study your Word, that we'll understand what's being said and what, what your Word demonstrates for us. That we'll grow to glorify and honor and serve you as you would have us. Forgive us for where we've fallen short of that. And help us, Father, to love you. We do love you, Father, and we thank you so much for loving us. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. Eleven ways to be an unremarkably average Christian. Number one, equate Christianity with going to church. Number one, equate Christianity with going to church. And we all know what's the most important verse in the entire Bible, right? Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. We've heard so many sermons about it and talked about it so much, we all have it memorized. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together is the habit of some is. We know that we're not supposed to forsake our assembly. And whether that ends up being one longer assembly on Sunday or two shorter ones, it doesn't really matter. If the brethren are here and we're assembled together, we're going to be here. We're going to have a gospel meeting. We'll make it. As long as the doors are open, we're going to be at church. And if we do that... That ought to be just good enough, don't you think? I mean, especially 
if I'm going to a church that's crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's on the patterns of worship and work and evangelism, going to church ought to be good enough. Now, I do recognize what 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 says. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 where it says that I should do my best to present myself as a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed handling accurately the Word of truth. I know that it says I need to be a worker, but really, I think about three times a week, four hours, that's, that's a lot of work. That, that's more work than anybody ought to have to do. And I know that in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11 that Luke talked about those Berean Christians or the Berean Jews, many of whom became Christians, and said that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the Word with eagerness and they studied the Scriptures daily to see if those things were so. But really, who wants to be noble when mediocrity is there for the easy taking? And I recognize that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46 that the disciples there, they gathered with each other outside of the assemblies on a daily basis without even being assigned. Acts 2.46 says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. But we already see each other three times a week. If we spent much more time together than that, I, don't think, we, I think we'd get sick of each other. And why? Why on earth would we ever have to take the things that we learn in these sermons and in these Bible classes and apply them to everything else in our life? Why would we have to apply them to our work lives, and our, our family lives, and our school lives, and our relationships? I mean, consider a passage like Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 22. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22, it says, "...to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear." And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You know, I think as long as we do that when we're here at, at church, we're probably doing pretty good. Let's not get extreme with this and act like I have to be impeccably honest while I'm at work. Let's not take this too far and act like I really need to get rid of my anger and my bitterness and my wrath and my clamoring in my relationship with my wife and my kids and my parents and my family and my other relationships. Why on earth would we ever get radical with this and act like I actually have to have pure speech at school? For those who want to excel at serving Christ, they'll apply what we learn to every aspect of, our, of their lives. But for the rest of us, willing to settle for being unremarkably average Christians, we can just equate Christianity with going to church. Number two. Number two. 
only do what the preacher proves I absolutely have to do. Number two, only do what the preacher proves I absolutely have to do. How many assemblies do I have to attend? What about in a gospel meeting? How many of those do I have to go to? How much praying do I really have to do? How much Bible study? Do I really have to teach in order to go to heaven? How short can my shorts be? How revealing can my clothes be? How much alcohol am I allowed to drink? How much money am I allowed to gamble at the casinos and with lottery tickets? These are all the kinds of questions that Christians struggle with every day as we strive to draw the line to make sure that we're good enough to get to heaven. After all, I want to be spiritual, but I want to have a little fun along the way too, right? I know that James chapter 4 and verse 8 says, James chapter 4 and verse 8 says, draw near to God and God will draw near to me. But it's so much easier to draw near to the lines that I have drawn. And really, that ought to be just good enough, especially if my lines are stricter than the lines that the denominational folks have been drawing. I understand that Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says that I need to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. But brethren, that is so old school. I mean, it's not the 1950s for crying out loud. And I recognize that in passages like Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, that Jesus demonstrated that God's commands, the statements and the specifically stated things in those commands also prohibit the attitudes and actions that lead up to those things. For instance, in Matthew 5, 21 and 22 it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And then down in verse 27 it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you... <coughs> Excuse me, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I know that that says that we can't just draw the boxes right around what's specifically stated, but, but going beyond that, that, that's just for those folks who are just really serious about serving God. I mean, think about this. Who among us really wants to be like that sinful woman in Luke chapter 7? Look there in Luke chapter 7 in verses 37 and 38. In Luke 7, verses 37 and 38, Luke wrote about this sinful woman. It says, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, don't you just know she looked just ridiculous? And there she was, just crying all over Jesus' feet, wiping it off with her hair. And it calls her a sinner. Who in their right mind wants to be like her when we could be like that extremely righteous Pharisee? Simon. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. I mean, here's the guy that opens up his house to Jesus. Then in verse 44, Jesus turned turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and washed them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. 
Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. You know, Jesus couldn't prove from the law that Simon actually had to wash his feet in order to be hospitable. Jesus couldn't prove from the law that Simon really had to anoint his head in order to be hospitable. Jesus couldn't prove absolutely from the law that he had to give him a greeting in order to be hospitable. I mean, he let him come into his house. What more could he ask for? Only those who want to excel in serving Christ will surrender themselves to God's will and try to go all out in it. For the rest of us, willing to settle for being unremarkably average Christians, it's good enough just to do what the preacher proves we absolutely have to do. Number three. Fit spirituality in around everything else. Number three, fit spirituality in around everything else that's going on in my life. Let's face it, we are busy people. We have work. We've got to get our kids to school. We've got camps and, and uh, scouts, sports, PTA, vacations. We've got our favorite TV shows that we have to watch. Got meetings that we have to go to, not to mention we've got to get into church every once in a while. And we have these tremendous commutes to all of those things. Somewhere in the midst of all that, we've got to find some time to sleep and get some rest. We've got to eat and drive to the restaurant and brush our teeth. And, and goodness knows, I need some time for myself to do the things that I want to do. Well, it's just tough to fit spirituality in around all of that. You know, the demands of the Bible, those weren't written for 21st century Christians. Times change. I think if every once in a while, a couple of weeks, I, I read a little bit out of the Bible and shoot off a few laser prayers when things are really dark and bad in my life and, and make it to the assemblies and classes some, that ought to be good enough. I just fit spirituality in around everything else that goes on in my life. Now, I know what Matthew 6, verse 33 says. Matthew 6, and verse 33 says that we're supposed to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. And I will. I will seek first God's kingdom and righteousness just as soon as I make sure that my kids pass their ACTs with flying colors. And I will seek first God's kingdom and righteousness just as soon as I make sure that my kids' college fund is paid for. And I will seek first God's kingdom and righteousness just as soon as my retirement is set in line. And I will seek first God's kingdom and righteousness just as soon as I make sure that all my work and recreation commitments are fulfilled. Surely God understands that, that Junior made a commitment to that baseball and football team. Surely God understands that I'm doing all this extra work in order to make those payments on that extremely large house that I bought that I, that I hope to someday maybe get started being hospitable with. Surely God understands that at least for today, studying for that English final is more important than studying my Bible. Surely God gets all that. I will seek first God's kingdom and righteousness just just as soon as I get some of these other things taken care of. 
only those who want to excel at serving Christ will actually put seeking God's kingdom and righteousness above absolutely everything. For the rest of us, willing to settle for being unremarkably average Christians, or we'll fit spirituality in around everything else going on in our lives and seek, God, seek first God's kingdom and righteousness right after we get some of these other things taken care of. Number four. Overextend myself financially. The number four way to be an unremarkably average Christian is to overextend myself financially. Financially, things are tough these days, especially with the rising costs of gas and health care. It especially becomes a problem when I've I've applied for and, and bought a house with the largest possible loan I could possibly qualify for. And then I have it leveraged completely to the hill. You know, i got to have two reliable cars. Why on earth would I want to settle for that TV that I bought seven years ago when Best Buy has, I think it's just a beautiful flat panel screen that would just look so good in my living room. You know, I could invite people over and we could watch movies together. And the computer sitting on my desk at home, that is so outdated. And the iPhone that I bought in February is already obsolete. My, my furniture's broken down and out of date. And here, guess what? I've run the numbers and figured out that I can afford the payments for every bit of it. I hope you realize that I'm saying most of this stuff for me as much as anybody else. You know, there are some people, they don't live quite so extravagantly or frivolously, but after they put aside money for their retirement fund and for their kids' college fund and for their rainy day fund and the extra payments on their house so they can pay it off and live the debt-free Dave Ramsey dream, they just don't have anything else for the Lord's work. I know that Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 7 says that the borrower is the lender's slave, but really, how bad could that slavery be? I know that Jesus, in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, told us about that widow woman who, who put her last two cents to do the work of the Lord into that temple treasury box, and He set her up as a good example. But brethren, really, who wants to take financial advice from an old broke widow? And I know that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, Paul set up the Macedonian brethren as if they were some kind of example regarding finances. When they contributed to the Judean need even from their poverty, giving far more than Paul ever expected. But come on, how many people did God really expect to give out of their own income, especially if they're in poverty, to sacrifice that and and, and give that for other folks, especially if they don't even know them? In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 16, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 16, The Hebrew writer said, don't neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I know that that's there. But I'm sure that God understands that at the end of the month, once I finally paid all my bills on all these things I bought, that God understands that I just don't have any left over to share. In fact, I'm stretched so thin, I wish folks would share with me. Only those who want to excel at serving Christ will set their finances up in such a way that they've got money to devote to the Lord's work and the sharing and being generous with others. 
For the rest of us, willing to be unremarkably average Christians, we'll just keep overextending ourselves financially. And we'll get to the Lord's work when those things take care of themselves. Number five. When someone strikes me, I'll hit them back. Number five, when someone strikes me, I'll hit them back. <laughs> Come on. Vengeance is natural. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I'm a violent person. I'm not going to go around just, just hitting people. But you know, some people really do need to be punished because of the way they treated me. I... I, I I'm not going to go around just starting beating on people, but I'll tell you what, if my wife yells at me, you better believe I'm going to yell back. And if the, the Walmart checkout clerk is snotty with me, you better know that I can give as good as I get. And if some co-worker of mine betrays me or slanders me, they better watch their back. I don't get revenge. I get even. And I'm not even until I'm one up. Now, I know that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 39 that when someone strikes me on the right cheek, I should turn to him the other also. And I know that in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44 that Jesus said that I'm supposed to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. And I know that Paul in Romans chapter 12 verse 18 through 21 said as much as it depends on me, I'm supposed to live at peace with all people, that I shouldn't seek my own vengeance because vengeance belongs to God, but rather I should repay good for evil that I should feed my enemy when he's hungry and, and, and give him drink when he's thirsty. And I know that Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, says that I should return good for evil and blessing for reviling. I know all that, but, but Jesus and Peter and Paul, they weren't able to look ahead and see my situation. They weren't able to look through those 2,000 years and know what I was dealing with and what people had done with me, because if they knew what I was going through, they would know that I am an exception to that rule. And so when somebody hits me, I'm going to hit them back. Only those who want to excel at serving Christ will actually submit to other people even when they have wronged them. But for the rest of us, willing to settle for being unremarkably average Christians, when somebody hits us, we'll hit them back. First five ways to be an unremarkably average Christian. Number one, equate Christianity with going to church. Number two, only do what the preacher proves you absolutely have to do. Number three, fit spirituality in around everything else going on in your life. Number four, overextend yourself financially. And number five, if somebody hits you, hit them back. We don't have time to deal with the others. We're going to cover the, the other six tonight. But I hope this is showing you how to be an unremarkably average Christian. I certainly hope this lesson has challenged you to do the exact opposite of its title. I hope you're challenged to be a remarkably excellent Christian. Don't forget this was only part one. 
Go to franklinchurchofchrist.com and listen to part two of 11 Ways to Be an Unremarkably Average Christian. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359 or you may contact us through our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. If you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we would love to meet you. We will look forward to making you a welcome guest at any of our classes or assemblies. You can find directions and times of our classes and assemblies on our website. Once again, that's at franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.